Hello, Midnight Myth listeners. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. You can learn more by visiting podvoices.help. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. We encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I am very, very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. We are coming at you, I think, two weeks since our last episode on The Witch. Yeah, look at us. Major thanks to our guest, Jeff, for coming on. It was a fantastic discussion, and it really got us into a satanic kind of mind. It is summer 2022, and we want to talk about Satan and all things Satan. Dare I say, hashtag satanic Satanic summer, summer, baby. And with that in mind, we are inspired to do a few episodes where we're going to be investigating themes such as devil worship, Satan, Satanism, and how those themes kind of come into our popular storytelling. And there's been a huge, huge show this summer, one that everyone is talking about, and one that has some sort of satanic undertones. And we thought this is the perfect time in our satanic summer to talk about Stranger Things. Yeah, season four, uh, volume one and volume two just dropped in the last few weeks. Hopefully you are caught up and have seen all the lengthy episodes of Stranger Things season four because we are not going to hold back in terms of spoilers. In particular, one spoiler will be a major focal point of this episode. So if you have not seen Stranger Things season four, go no further unless you are just willing to be spoiled. Absolutely. And the show that may end up saving Netflix because apparently Netflix financials are not looking so great right now, but they do have this smash hit phenomenon that is Stranger Things. And we're going to be discussing and analyzing and disseminating all of the themes that we found in Stranger Things season four. And yeah, so before we roll up our sleeves and get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Hey, we would love to hear from you. We're on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We are on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Those are the best ways to reach us. You can also contact us through our website, midnightmyth.com. Our website also has places where you can support us, like our merch store and our Patreon, which we are currently making a big donation uh, representing our Patreon pledges to the National Network of Abortion Funds because we believe that abortion is healthcare and a human right, uh, and we staunchly oppose the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. So if you're a Patreon supporter, that's where your dollars are going this month. 
If you're not a Patreon supporter, get on over to an abortion fund or the National Network and support human rights. Uh, rock on. Anyway, other than being in touch with us or supporting us, you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And also make sure you check out my side podcast, Sleep and Sorcery. If you are like me and you have a hard time falling asleep and you love fantasy and mythology and folklore, I write original stories inspired by fantasy worlds that will lull you sweetly to sleep. And we are on all podcast players and the meditation app Insight Timer. So head on over and get yourself a nice night of sleep. Wonderful. Wheel of Ka update. We are close-ish to putting our much overdue conversation on the stand on the books. Thank you for your patience. It will be not too long. We are making our way through the stand. If you haven't picked up the stand or if you want to reread the stand prior to our conversation, it's a very big book, so you better get to it. Um, But yeah, it'll be here shortly. With that, let's do the briefest of brief recaps on Stranger Stranger Things Season 4. There's a lot of content, so this will be incredibly brief. The Upside Down returns, this time with a new villain named Vecna from a D&D boss. And Vecna uses his uh, upside down telekinetic powers to magically haunt everybody. We learn that Vecna is actually patient one in Hawkins' lab, that Eleven ended up banishing to another dimension that then goes on to form the Upside Down after he went crazy and started murdering people in Hawkins' lab. We also have our heroes in their lowest spot ever as they are scattered. Some are trapped as like Hopper in a Russia Gulag. Some are in California trying to make their way back. Elle loses her powers and needs to regain her powers. And in the end, a massive battle comes where we have all of our heroes at some point fighting fighting Vecna, who we learn is sacrificing children so that he can make a permanent portal, bringing his evil powers and the upside down to America, to the world, so that he can destroy it. In the end, our heroes are triumphant, but at terrible cost. Eddie Munson, is his name Munson? Yep. Yeah, Eddie Munson. For a minute there, I'm like, is it Eddie Munster? No, but nope, Eddie Munson Eddie. ends up losing his life. Max is so severely wounded that she almost dies and is stuck in a coma and a rift of an earthquake happens. And at the very end, we see that the upside down is starting to bleed into our reality. Dun, dun, dun. Can't wait for season five. That's season four. The briefest of brief of all recaps. Laurel, so it's too new of a show to ask if it holds up. Stranger Things has been around for a little while now. We have talked about it in the podcast before. I think we did an episode on season one, if I remember correctly. We didn't do episodes on season two and three, though we enjoyed it. So just a few questions. One, what are your overall thoughts, impressions of season four? And where do you think it is in terms of quality compared to the previous three seasons? You know, I really like this season. I think... Like the seasons before it, it does wear its 80s nostalgic influences on its sleeve. It's very Nightmare on Elm Street. It's very Silence of the Lambs, etc. But this one felt at the same time like it had something very original simmering underneath the surface. I think that watching the kids grow up obviously is a challenge that the show has to overcome because part of what drew us to the series in the first place was this incredible ensemble of really young actors who just made us all feel like we were kids again. And I think they handled the maturation of these characters really nicely in this season. I also, my favorite characters in the show ever since season one, since the kids started growing up, have been the older kids. I love following Steve and Nancy. I love Robin. I love Eddie Munson so much Uh, And following them has been a really fun part of the adventure. And it's put the pieces of the puzzle together more and more and reminded me of shows that I love, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and so on. So I really, really did enjoy this season. I thought it was really fun. I thought it was really scary. I'm a huge Kate Bush fan. As I get a little bit of distance, and I mean like a week of distance, I have a handful of gripes with this season. But I think my overall impression is that 
I think this is up there with the stronger seasons of Stranger Things. I think it's really, really hard to come anywhere close to the lightning in a bottle that was season one. It was just so unique and yet so familiar. And every season has been striving to hit that same height to varying degrees of success. I don't care for season two. I really enjoyed season three, uh, but I feel like this one has been the strongest one for me since season one. I love all of those thoughts. I'll add some two of my own. One, I just think getting the sort of elephant in the room out of the way, there's no reason for a two and a half episode of television. Yeah, I don't think that this season really justified its lengthy runtimes. If you do a two and a half hour television show, it should stand alone as its own movie. And I really think that long episode would have been better if it were broken up and even into two long episodes or maybe three episodes, I think it would have enhanced the viewing pleasure. It would have made it easier for us to watch when you go down to watch a show, especially if you're like Laurel and I, you have jobs, you have a family, you have podcasts. So you've got a lot going on. Finding two and a half hours to sit and watch something is a rarity. And so when you get that, you really want to make sure that you use it And I just don't think as good as the finale was, and I thought it was spectacular, I did think it was a little indulgent of the film creators to think, or the movie show creators, I should say, the Doofer Brothers, Duffer Brothers. Wow, I can't talk. I think it's a little um, indulgent of them to say, our show is so great, we can break all of the rules, including doing a two and a half hour long season finale. And I think that finale episode would have been better if it were broken up. That being stated, I freaking adored this season. In season one, had a certain formula that they tried to replicate in season two and three. And that is, there is a monster from the upside down. No one believes the kids. The kids have to fight it on their own. The adults finally come around. In the end, they're not strong enough to defeat the monster. And Eleven uses her powers to win. And that was phenomenal in season one. That formula was great. Reproducing it in season two and three, while those were still enjoyable things that I liked to watch, I enjoyed those seasons, that to me didn't do anything really fresh or new. And nor did I feel that it really pushed the characters to grow. In certain respects, I feel like characters went backwards. Like Hopper kind of becomes a really bad misogynistic father to L in season three. And I'm like, this character seems to have gone in the opposite direction is not growing, but is regressing. And this season, I think really got it right. And the reason I think it got it right is because there was a central theme and that central theme was acted a hundred percent through the characters and through the antagonist. And to me, that theme was guilt. All of the characters, especially the main ones. So I don't say all, cause there's so many, were dealing with and processing trauma in their past and not processing it in healthy ways and felt guilty about it. And in comes an antagonist who the way it attacks the heroes is by accessing their trauma and throwing their guilt back into their face, forcing the characters to then reconcile with their guilt so they could then overcome the monster. And this is true in Max and Elle's story probably the most, but it it echoes, it splinters like vines of Vecna's upside down into all of the other characters. And in the end, all of the characters get to have a moment where they either will rise above their guilt or maybe they'll continue to bury it down. What do I mean? So Lucas and ends up feeling guilty that he left his his um his friends tried to join the popular kids and in the end alienated his true friends. And that is reconciled at the end when he battles with the jock character whose name at this moment, I can't recall. Jason. Jason. Yeah. When he battles Jason and ultimately overcomes Jason and realizes who his true friends are. Uh, Steve has to reconcile with the fact that he was kind of that jock guy and he blew it with Nancy. And because he wasn't mature enough, he didn't get to have the girl of his dreams And what does it start with Steve's character? Him lamenting that he can't actually meet a girl as good as Nancy to fall in love with because 
she was the one and he totally let that go. And he had to reconcile with that while in the upside down and realize, man, I really screwed up and I need to push myself forward. Hopper and Joyce have to confront their feelings for each other, which has to reconcile all the guilt they have with their exes, all the trauma that they process. And mostly Elle has to deal with the fact that one of the themes of her character, the entire series is, am I a monster? And she's not. And she had to access traumatic memories to realize she didn't slaughter everyone in Hawkins lab. And then lastly, Billy has to deal with the fact that she hated her brother. Oh, Max. I'm sorry, Max. Max, her brother. Her brother was Billy. Thank you for correcting me. And the theme splintering through all of the main characters ends up echoing in this one antagonist who uses guilt and trauma as a weapon by accessing people's minds, breaking them down so that he could then use them as human sacrifices, psychic human sacrifices, so that he could then take over the world. And because it was so tight thematically, and because of that, it was it was able to still have that basic formula, but they elevated the storytelling from the first season. And that is why it is, I think, the second best. I think it is not quite as good as the first, because nothing ever will be to me. The first um, season of Stranger Things is sheer perfection, and I adore it. I love to rewatch it. But this, man, it came really, really close And to me, that's the specific reason why. I think that's extremely well said. You know, I'm thinking about even other examples and characters who play less of a role in this season, like Jonathan, who has all this guilt about not being able to come clean with Nancy, that he has different goals than she does. Like all of the characters, even Will, who's trying to wrestle with his inner secret, his clearly his sexuality, like he's feeling guilty uh, because society won't accept him for who he is. It's really interesting to watch all of these characters try and figure out how to communicate with each other when the block in the way is that they're all feeling so much shame, they're all feeling so much fear, they're all feeling so much guilt, and then you bring in Vecna, who preys upon that. And I think that's why this season elevated to new heights. I really like the way it scattered our heroes to put them into their lowest point. Elle doesn't have the powers. Hopper and Joyce are trapped in Russia. All of these obstacles were in their way that if this group could only just get united, they could overcome Vecna. We've seen them beat so many monsters, but they are so divided and so scattered. And I thought that's a really efficient and fun storytelling device because when they are the adventure party led by Elle, I mean, they're invincible. You know, they can conquer monsters. They've done it before. And I really enjoyed the way that they took the heroes, they broke them down, they put them into weak spots and really felt danger. I really felt like Vecna could win. And he does. Vecna does win. Though they apparently vanquished him, the upside down is now bleeding into our our reality. Things are going to be really hard. Vecna wins. And that I thought was a bold and brave choice. And even though it does have Elle recognizing her power and ultimately vanquishing Vecna, it is the fact that he is successful in his sacrifice and that now the upside down is going to intermingle with our reality, the stranger thing reality, Hawkins reality, we'll say, that I think is really cool and has me just like, uh, I got to see how this ends now. So uh, while we're talking about what we liked, what we didn't like, and we're talking about characters feeling guilt, let's talk about Eddie Munson. Um, Because Eddie is a new character who's brought in, immediately charming, immediately won over fans. Like, I don't think anybody was prepared for how much he was just going to become an immediate fan favorite. Uh, And he tragically dies in the finale of season four, And I would love to know how you feel about that character death. One of the things that I love about this show is how nostalgic it makes me feel for my own childhood. Being a child in the 80s who listened to metal, who wasn't part of the popular kids, who played Dungeons and Dragons, who wanted to be in band, who had long hair and wore black and did all of those things. Eddie Munson really resonated with me. He reminded me a lot of people I know, a little bit of myself as well. There was a point in high school where I was sort of the king of the freaks and geeks, the way that Eddie is. And 
Um, I like that Eddie also, in a high school sense, cross-tribed, meaning that he had a friend that was a popular girl. I was also able to do that in high school. I had friends in different, you know, friend groups and friend pods. I was able to do that. And I thought he was one of the most compelling and endearing characters. Stranger Things has a way, the Duffer brothers have a way to really introduce new characters that you find super charming, that you fall absolutely in love with, and then they brutally murder them. Yep, Bob Newby, Alexi. Bob Newby was probably my favorite part of season two. I loved Bob Newby and Bob Newby the superhero, and he just gets ripped apart by demodogs, and it is tragic. And I think they have a history of doing this and doing this incredibly well, and I think Eddie was probably the most interesting character the one that I enjoyed the most since the original first series and his death really impacted me. It, it impacted me because on one level, if you look at the plot mechanics of the show, Eddie didn't really need to do that. He had a way back out of the upside down and he really could have possibly, you know, not done that. And I think he's thinking in the theme of guilt, He's feeling tremendous guilt at his friend Chrissy's death. He is finally recognizing his power. How many times does he say he's no hero? He's a coward. And finally, he realizes that it's not, you can't keep playing adventure. You can't keep playing hero. At some point in time, you have to step up and do the tough thing. And he chooses to do something to help save Dustin which is draw these bats away from the portal so that they don't go into the real world. Whether he had to do that or not, I don't know. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm tearing up thinking about it. But in the end, a question that I think we can take from that character moment that we all need to internalize is, one, we can all be heroic if we, if we are brave, if we can conquer our fear. And to see a character conquer their fear and finally step into their role as hero and to see them transcend like that was beautiful. It was sad, but I loved it. I, uh, I hated Eddie's death. I, I do think it's moving. I do think the conversation that Dustin has with his uncle in the end is really profound and loving. And I, I do love the idea. And you, you mentioned how he cross tribed. I think that is a really great way to put it. And when Dustin says, I wish everyone had gotten to know him, really know him, because they would have loved him. It's like Chrissy is an example of that. Chrissy would never hang out with this guy, but she spends five minutes with him and is just laughing and more joyful than we've ever seen her on screen. Eddie brings joy to everyone, and it's hard to imagine that anyone getting to know him wouldn't, despite their allegiances in high school, just absolutely be charmed by him. He's wonderful. I really wanted to see... Eddie in the next season as a mainstay of this, this Scooby gang, for lack of a better term. He was going to be the new Robin, right? Bring in another character who brings a different dimension to the group and who gives us a totally new way of looking at this time period and the nostalgia of this time period. And we'll talk a little bit more about what this time period meant contextually for characters like Eddie, but my biggest problem with his death is that Stranger Things had the opportunity to give this character the absolution and the redemption that he deserves in the eyes of Hawkins that so many other people in real life did not get because of what we're going to talk about in this episode, the satanic panic. Uh, I, I think it would have been a really beautiful and cathartic thing for Stranger Things to do to valorize Eddie at the end and give him the redemption that so many other real life people really sought. Um, so I, I really, I don't like the choice to kill off Eddie. I respect that you appreciate it. I think both sides are totally valid, but that is how I feel about that. Especially because Eddie was heroic from day one, right? He didn't need, just because he ran away from a traumatic event doesn't mean he's a coward. He doesn't need to prove himself after being terrified by witnessing a supernatural death in his home. Like, Eddie, Eddie is so brave from day one just because he has the unapologetic courage to be himself 
every single day of his life. And I think that should be celebrated more. I so disagree with everything you just said, respectfully. I think the theme of guilt and the theme of dealing with past trauma would does not escape Eddie. He is traumatized by that event, and this is the way that he reconciles with it. I just want to call out some symbolism in Eddie that I think is worth drawing upon why I think it makes sense for him to have sacrificed himself. He's a skinny white guy with long hair, hangs out in the outskirts of society where all of the freaks and geeks are. People look down on him. He doesn't think the established status quo and the established power structures are helping or benefiting anyone. He's young. He's a rebel. He ends up becoming criminalized and ends up dying for the sins of others. Does it sound like any other story out there? Now, do I think it is an intentional strategy to make Eddie a Christ-like figure? I don't know, but I can't help but map that onto it. And the death of the character is what drives that symbolism home. Furthermore, I think it's worth noting that in this world, the world of Hawkins, Indiana, there's not a single piece of me that believes if Eddie lives that he escapes the the murder trial, that he escapes being labeled as a Satanist, and that he doesn't end up being arrested and going to jail. Because that is the universe that they have set up. And even at the very end, they are still blaming Satan for all of the troubles that Hawkins has experienced, and they are still blaming Eddie. So I don't see a way unless they change the entire show to be about Eddie's trial and redemption, where they could redeem him and him not go to jail as a murderer and a Satanist. Yeah, but at least he could have a voice in it if he wasn't, you know, dead. Also, Jesus wasn't white, but that was a really good point that you made. I I do agree there is Christ-like sacrifice that is mapped onto Eddie. I think that's... I think that's well said. I I feel like this is an agree to disagree moment. And I also recognize that there is a ton of emotion that's wrapped up in the way that I'm reading Eddie's uh, heroic sacrifice. And I just really wanted to see more of the character. That's at the heart of my problem with the death. Yes. And I think that's fair because I would have loved to have seen more of Eddie as well. But the story is the story and his does end. I think it might be worth turning our eye a little bit to what the satanic panic actually was and that period of American history. And I think because it kind of informs a lot of the events of the show, in particular, the events of Eddie. And would that be okay with you? Absolutely. There's a phenomenon that political scientists and philosophers and historians have documented, and they're called quote, moral panics. And these have been around for a really long time. And the general gist of it is people are panicking about something. And often it the moral panic centers around the lives of children. For example, speaking of Christianity, in the ancient Roman Empire, after Jesus's death and supposed resurrection, there is now a new Christian religion that emerges and it was heavily persecuted through the lens of a, quote, moral panic. And one of the reasons it was so heavily persecuted was the belief that the Christians were cannibals eating children. Part of this had to do with the taking of the Eucharist and the the, uh, principles of drinking the blood of Jesus and eating of his flesh, being misunderstood by the Romans, being like, they are eating flesh and drinking blood. This is a cannibal cult. And the other is that they are going to poison their children with this cannibalistic cult. And hence, they were heavily persecuted. There were several other moral panics that have existed. We touched upon them a little bit in our last week's episode in the witch hunts of the late Middle Ages, in which there was a belief that witches who would combine heresy and um, uh, sorcery and commune with Satan, and that there were these these cults and covens of witches operating in harmony, trying to undo Christian society. There was also a moral panic in the 50s in America in McCarthyism. This was about 
uprooting all of the supposed communists that these cells that were working and what were they trying to do? Use movies and TV to target young people. So there is a long history in Western civilization of these moral panics. And I'm speaking pretty quickly and glibly about it, but there's a long tradition of these periods in time where everybody is morally outraged and afraid for the moral future of civilization. And they go into this panic where they start persecuting people. Now the satanic panic is a particularly interesting time. It's roughly dated from 1980 to 1990 and it is a moral panic. There are over 12,000 unsubstantiated cases of what are called satanic ritual abuse, also known as SRA, and sometimes just known as ritual abuse, ritualistic abuse, organized abuse, or sadistic ritual abuse. All of this kicked off with a book called Michelle Remembers. It was written in 1980, and it was um, done by a Canadian psychiatrist called Lawrence Pedazer, and the patient eventually ended up marrying him. And they use something called recovered memory therapy. It's sort of like pseudo hypnosis and suggestion. And through this process, uh, this woman recalls being abused by a group of Satanists, sexually, physically assaulted by them. And he writes this book about it. And in it, she suggests that there is a network of Satanic cults that perform ritualistic abuse against primarily children but anyone that they can get their hands on. And this kicks off a belief that there are widespread satanic cults out there um, that are cannibals, that do child murder, torture, they do incest, all of these terrible, horrible things that you can think of. And one of the things that was linked to the satanic panic was Dungeons and Dragons. At this time, Dungeons & Dragons was a very popular game, and not as popular as, let's say, Monopoly, but still, or baseball, but still a very popular game. Kids were playing Dungeons & Dragons. They were often listening to metal music. They were often dressed in black, and it was believed that the dungeon master was the leader of a satanic cult designed to corrupt and destroy America's youth. This is something that is even echoed in through to today where we have the modern QAnon right-wing fascistic movement, which is all about secret cults of devil worshipers infiltrating society and doing what? Harming children. There is nothing more precious to a society. There's no resource more important to a human society than their young because we will all die and it is our young who will replace us. And the idea that there could be something out there cannibalizing the youth, attacking the youth, and that must be uprooted is baked deep into our fears and deep into our mythic subconscious. Because so many of our ancient myths are about what? Fathers eating their sons, sons usurping their fathers. And because of this, this panic around who is controlling our children really to me reflects that people recognize they don't have control over their children. And this satanic panic that existed in the 80s and the 90s, which has been largely discredited in almost every instance of satan international linking satanic cults has now been discredited. Um, it was a huge presence. It had law enforcement. There were Senate committees devoted to understanding this. Geraldo Riviera has a two-hour-long satanic special that he ran, I think, in 1984. I forget which year. It's in my notes. We watched the whole thing, and it looks like a parody of the 80s. It looks like a satire because it's taking the satanic threat so seriously and just starts with the assumption there is this interlocking satanic cult that's killing people, and it presents zero evidence and it's so laughable, but at the time, this really gripped America, and it even spread to Britain, I learned as well. And so this is the world in which Eddie Munson is playing in, and I say, in that world, there's no way he gets away with that murder. 
I thank you so much for that. That was really well said and a really great overview of the satanic panic. One aspect that I want to just add to that is that you talk about the fear for children, fear for our future, fear for the younger generation being at the core of the panic, and who were the focal points of many of the accusations of satanic ritual abuse, childcare centers. And the one of the more famous cases is against the McMartin School, where there was this absolute railroading of this daycare center and people lost their lives. They spent decades in prison. They lost most of their lives to these false accusations. And there is a really particular uh, kind of perfect storm, this soup of context that leads into this moral panic. So you're talking about these kind of mythic psychological undertones, these fears that we all have that are instinctual fears for our children. You also have the 80s as a time when political, social, economic factors are changing significantly. Tons of women who had not previously been part of the workforce are entering the workforce. There's a huge influx of women working while also being parents. And so kids are going into childcare centers like never before. And so that becomes a focal point for this fear. I, uh, yeah, so I really appreciate that context. The other part that I wanted to highlight was that you talk about how important the advent of uh, recovered memory therapy is. This book, Michelle Remembers, as being uh, one of the, the places where this takes hold, one of the places where this gathers steam, because this becomes practiced more often, and you get patients revealing that they have uh, apparently repressed memories that they were traumatically abused by satanic cults. Now, uh, recovered memory therapy totally debunked. Like the APA will not hear a case that uh, the American Psychological Association will not hear a case uh, of ritual abuse, of trauma, of sexual abuse that is just based on um, recovered memory therapy. You also have to present corroborating evidence because it is heavily uh, implied that the power of suggestion and the, the tactics that are employed during that are not entirely sound. So I wanted to bring that in, too, because that is a huge sort of plot device that's used in Stranger Things 4, Eleven being subjected to a pseudo kind of recovered memory therapy because Dr. Brenner is not a real doctor, not a real therapist, not someone who has any credibility as a medical professional, but he does subject her to something similar to recovered memory therapy. And that's just an interesting irony that I found in this season of Stranger Things, because on the one hand, it feels like it's condemning the satanic panic and the moral panic and the mass hysteria surrounding it. But then it's also using some of the more problematic tropes of it. Interesting thought there. Yeah, I don't know much about how the recovered memory theory works. I did read in my research that it's no longer really used or believed to be super credible. I also think it's worth noting that in every instance, at least that I know of, of a moral panic, whether it's the satanic panic, the persecution of the Christians in the Roman Empire, the persecutions of Jews during the Black Death, it is always a sense of finding the people on the margins, the people the most vulnerable, the people on the outskirts that have the fewest uh, resources, means, and rights to defend, and othering them, which means making sure that you label them as not you and then using the cudgel of societal power, um, the mob rule to then persecute that other so that you yourself can feel vindicated. Yeah. It's in group out group. Yeah. This is true of the witch trials of the late middle ages that we've talked about before. Um, this is true of so many times in so many eras. It's not us. It's them over there. They're destroying our youth so we need to persecute them. We need to purge them from society. We need to injure them. We need to limit their movements. We need to imprison them. All of the, the tools of oppression end up coming out, and Eddie, his character, is caught up in this oppression. And in, we know as the, the watchers of the show that there's something supernatural, but most people in Hawkins, Indiana, in this show, don't believe in the supernatural. Not in the... Uh, Stranger Thingsian sense. They might be religious or maybe they believe in wishes or something like this, but they don't believe that there can be this alternate dimension with magic powers that is killing their youth. 
And I think in this way, we have to understand Eddie's demise as someone who had no other options because the satanic panic, which literally did happen where innocent people were accused of crimes and put to jail simply because they liked Metallica and played Dungeons and Dragons. I hope all of our listeners got a chance to take a sip of their drink because Derek found a way to incorporate the Roman Empire into this. But that, you know, that leads me right into talking about one of the more famous cases of satanic panic, which actually kicked off in around 1993. So outside of that realm of the like 1980 to 1990 that we consider the the satanic panic, but shows how uh, how thoroughly this seeped into the American consciousness. And that's the the case against uh, the case of the West Memphis Three. So Jason Baldwin, Jesse Miss Kelly, and particularly Damian Eccles. If you have seen the fabulous trio of documentaries Paradise Lost, uh, the first one is called Paradise Lost, The Child Murders of Robin Hood Hills, something like that. Um, they're excellent, notable because they were the first time, so Metallica actually lent their music to uh, the film as the soundtrack, and it was the first time Metallica ever allowed their music to be used in a film, and they scored all three of the movies. But these documentaries follow this uh, case of the murder of these three eight-year-old boys in West Memphis, Arkansas, which I know is where you spent some time in the 80s or 90s, right? In the 90s. I did not live in West Memphis, but I did right. live in Bentonville, Arkansas during the satanic panic as a metalhead who played Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, so you can certainly speak to the culture of that area, but this was obviously widespread across the U.S. and even across the pond. But what happened was these poor little boys were were brutally killed, and rather than pursuing uh, some rather obvious leads in other directions, Law enforcement instead zeroed in on three teenage boys. One of them, Damian Eccles, who they saw as the ringleader, was someone who wore black, listened to metal, read Stephen King books, enjoyed listening to Metallica. You know, he was clearly someone that you would associate with uh, an Eddie type, and he was considered an outsider, a quote-unquote freak and the supposition was that he led a satanic cult and that they had ritually murdered these boys. And if you watch the documentary, you can see more of the details of how brutally awful the uh, the investigation was, how completely railroaded they were, um, but how clearly the entire case against these boys was not uh, put together based on real evidence, but rather on the emotional biases of people who do not accept people like Damien, do not accept people like Eddie. And Damien is the loose inspiration for Eddie Munson. So I would recommend watching those films. And, you know, fortunately, decades later, these guys are out of prison, but it's only because they entered in an Alfred plea. It's not because they won successful appeals. It's because they worked out a plea bargain whereby they say, I'm not admitting guilt but I am admitting that there is significant evidence against me and let's work out a way that I get off death row. Damien Eccles was on death row for wearing black and listening to Metallica. Like this is real and this is living memory. This is recent. That's crazy. There is something in all of us that has the capacity to other people and then look at them as less than human and then want to see them purged from society. This is something that exists in every single historical era, every single period of human history. It exists today. And the satanic panic is one example of it. You know, I remember this all the satanic panic happening. And I remember my parents being like, you should stop wearing Metallica shirts. You should stop. We should cut your hair. Cause I had long hair. Let's cut your hair because they were concerned for my safety as a metalhead kid. And obviously with uh, trademark humility and always wanting to take my parents' suggestions 100% literal, I, yeah, I told them absolutely not. I'm keeping my hair long and I'll wear Metallica shirts as much as I want. I never at all listened to them. But my parents were really worried knowing that all of this stuff was going on, knowing that people were looking at, now I lived in Arkansas, bit of personal history. 
I lived there. It was sort of towards the end of the satanic panic, but um, I was from the Northeast, so I wasn't religious, and I was looked at as a Yankee Satanist, and I was so ridiculed as a Yankee Satanist that my parents had to have a meeting with the principal and the superintendent saying, you have to stop people from calling my son a devil worshiper and a Satanist and a Yankee, or otherwise we're going to sue you. <laughs> and that's how bad it got. So in these communities like Bentonville, Arkansas, like Memphis, Arkansas, um, like Hawkins, Indiana, that are smaller, tight-knit, incredibly white, incredibly Christian, anything that doesn't fall into that mold is typically looked at as inherently bad and must be purged. And the satanic panic is a way to weaponize, institutionalize those latent fears and that othering so that you have a mechanism by which you can do that purging. Yeah, you know, there's an interesting thing that happens in the Geraldo special. And, you know, I'm not recommending that anybody watch it, but it is kind of mind-blowing. But he talks to a guy who is a proclaimed Satanist. He's a member of the Temple of Set. And Geraldo starts going at this guy with this accusation of, like, your church uh, takes, uh, instead of the Eucharist, they eat literal flesh and they drink literal blood. And that is just so reminiscent of the accusations that you were describing when the ancient Romans were persecuting Christians. It, it doesn't feel like it's possible that this was 40 years ago, but it was. Um, and, and it just feels like this is a theme that recurs time and time again, these ancient fears that get awoken within us. I think that's really interesting. Absolutely. And you joke about me linking this to the Roman Empire, but all roads lead to Rome. They certainly do. On top of all this is the fact that there is simply no evidence whatsoever to suggest that there has ever been an actual organized effort to worship the devil. There's no real religion that worships Satan as the devil. There is the Church of Satan, which is basically hedonistic atheism. There's the satanic temple, which is essentially an atheistic religion that is also based around uh, human rights and uh, particularly the separation of church and state. I'm boiling it down and it's more complex than that. And there was a, a, a cult called the Luciferians, but they worshiped Satan as Lucifer, as uh, as the hero of Milton's Paradise Lost, essentially. And we're going to talk a lot more in our next episode about the history of Satan and the history of uh, stories that erupt around this really enigmatic figure of mythology, religion, and history. So uh, stay tuned for some of that. But this was just a precursor. Yeah, and just to echo, even Geraldo had to apologize after he had aired this decades later, realizing like, yeah, this was actually really bad and it was terrible journalism and I had no evidence to make any of the conclusions that I made. And that is the nature of these panics. People look back at them and they say, wow, we were really, really wrong. Yeah, shame on you, Geraldo, and shame on everyone who's peddling QAnon now. I hope they eventually come to their senses and apologize, but I'm not hopeful. Um, so do you want to segue into some more fun stuff? I mean, fun is sort of a relative word when you're talking about this this kind of subject material. I'm having a great time. I don't know about it, the listeners or you, <laughs> Laurel, but I'm having a ton of fun. So I wanted to also take some time to talk about the new villain that is introduced this season, because in the past we've had some fun talking about the uh, relationships between the D&D, &D, Dungeons and Dragons counterparts, and the villains that are actually portrayed in Stranger Things. And I love the convention that Stranger Things has gone with, where the characters are D&D &D players and the way that they make sense, and they're, you know, they're fans of Lord of the Rings, the way that they make sense of the supernatural things happening in their world, the horrifying and eldritch and unknowably evil things happening in their world, is that they give them a familiar face. So the first time they try to understand the upside down, they call it the veil of shadows. And that helps to uh, you know, contextualize it for them and then make it easier for them to understand and fight. And what they do this season uh, is they give us Vecna. 
And Vecna is a huge, super important, devastatingly evil character, villain in Dungeons and Dragons. So it's super exciting to see him in a different kind of format in Stranger Things. What did you think of Vecna, just off the top? I thought Vecna was one of the most compelling and interesting antagonists that I have seen for a long time. You know, as a lifelong D&D player, I had no idea that Vecna was a D&D character. So it was the first time I even heard of it. For example, Demogorgons, Mind Flayers, totally get those. I know exactly what they are. I know where they are in the D&D monster manual, which if you don't play Dungeons and Dragons is a gigantic book with all of the monsters that you could throw in the way of the heroes to try to slow them down or kill them. Um, But Vecna was completely new to me, but I loved that Vecna one or Henry or one. I loved how personal he was. I loved how it leans deep into horror. Stranger things is a multi-genre show but season four felt the most horror and I would say horror in a Stephen Kingian way where that the real horror are just regular people and what they do to each other. And here is this supernatural thing that's going to push all of the negative and terrible things that people are to a head. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. That's kind of how I've, I've interpreted the Stephen King that I've read on the journey that you kind of spurred me to join you inspired me to read Stephen King. And my first takeaway from reading things like The Shining and Salem's Lot was like, yes, these are horror, but I don't think Stephen King is a horror writer. I think he is someone who writes really compelling human drama that is at times augmented by supernatural forces. And that is what's happening in this season of Stranger Things. These characters are dealing with deeply personal trauma And Vecna is just really there to augment that trauma or to bring it to the surface, bring the guilt to the surface that we talked about earlier. Uh, I really like Vecna. I think the character design is interesting, although I noticed like it it just stuck in my head at the very end that the like design of the way his like top lip lip is reminds me a lot of the Grinch. So then when he was like, Max, I was just seeing Jim Carrey as the Grinch talking to his dog, Max. Uh, so I hope I don't ruin it for everybody now that I've said that, but I, I thought that <laughs> could have been a little bit better. Anyway, talking about Vecna, particularly Vecna in D&D, it's interesting that you had not encountered Vecna. I am a relatively newer uh, Dungeons & Dragons player. I've only been doing it for a couple of campaigns, and I had only heard of Vecna in a passing reference in another podcast that I listened to that occasionally uh, intersects with D&D. But I did a little bit of research to catch up, And Vecna has actually been part of Dungeons and Dragons since the very beginning. He's been a part of every version of Dungeons and Dragons. He first showed up in a supplement that was called, I think, Eldritch Eldritch Wizardry, uh, which came out as one of the earliest supplements to the first edition of Dungeons and Dragons. What is Vecna in Dungeons and Dragons? He starts out, his backstory... He starts out as just a pair of magical objects or artifacts known as the hand of Vecna and the eye of Vecna, specifically either the left hand and the left eye. There's a whole story to why it is this way. But you could, as a player, uh, retrieve these items and you could use these items as magical you know, enhancements to your power, but you would have to sever your left hand and replace it with the hand of Vecna or carve out your left eye and replace it with the eye of Vecna in order to use these. And even then you wouldn't necessarily have a ton of control over it. But Vecna is a lich. Uh, A lich is essentially uh, the way I simplify it for myself is it's a zombie that has maintained some sense of intelligence. It's like a smart zombie. Usually what's implied in Lich as part of fantasy, Dungeons and Dragons, and you know similar uh, things that spin out from that is that there is a sort of ritual aspect to the undeadness of them. Usually it's a sorcerer who has become a necromancer and they perform some kind of ritual to become immortal, become undead, become a Lich. It's a kind of ascendancy into a new form that prolongs their life. 
So like Voldemort could be considered a lich if you really think about it because he creates horcruxes, he eventually loses his body in the fight with Harry and then regains his body. He's almost a reanimated corpse who has these little horcruxes out there. Just an interesting way to think about it. And the term lich comes from lich, which is an archaic English term, which literally means corpse. Uh, you see liches kind of all over popular culture. I just mentioned Voldemort. There is a powerful lich in Adventure Time, which is one of my favorite uh, TV shows. And there's a lich in Ready Player One. They're sort of all over the place. There's also the lich king in uh, Lord of the Rings, He's right? He's the witch king. Oh, I he's, messed that up. He's similar to a lich, though. I was thinking about that, but I feel... They're wraiths. They're wraiths, and I think you have to s- separate those because it, it doesn't have... He doesn't become an immortal, undead creature through any act of his own. It's sort of he's corrupted by uh, the power of the rings of man. So, uh, But that is an interesting comparison. So Vecna has... At this point in the editions that exist now, he has achieved god status in D&D lore. He is referred to as Vecna, the Arch Lich. And his backstory, there's not a ton that's known, and the way they talk about it in like the wikis for Dungeons and Dragons is like, scholars debate this and this about Vecna, which I just love, the sort of in-universe. Uh, there's scholarship about this ancient uh, figure. But what is known is that he's over a thousand years old. Uh, he was born either human or half elf in a realm known as Greyhawk. And his mother was a hedge witch. And she was banished for practicing necromancy before Vecna started practicing dark magic as well as a child. Um, other things about Vecna that are interesting he's the creator of the Book of Vile Darkness, although I think scholars in DD lore debate this. Uh, and the recent character redesign of him. He's actually got, like, the Book of Vile Darkness is inside his rib cage. It's designed that way so you can sort of see it through his open rib cage. Uh, so it's been, like, incorporated into his body, which really reminds me of, like, the Darkhold or other, like, corruptive books, the Necronomicon and so on. And I wanted to read a quote from the Book of Vile Darkness, if you will permit me. Quote, I have but one warning before I leave you to your awakening. Resist not the truths I and perhaps others record here. Open your mind and heart to the knowledge contained on these pages. Only then will you understand and receive the wisdom darkness can provide. Embrace the lore and spurn the light, and you too shall ever after walk in darkness, end quote. I love that quote. That's very cool. And it makes me think of, you know, one of the common sort of tropes that you see played out here in Stranger Things is that you have two characters with similar levels of power in 1 and 11, and they use them differently. And one goes down the dark path and one goes down the light path. And I think that is something that you have seen. We've seen in Star Wars. You've seen it time and time again, where two characters are fairly similar but one chooses the sort of dark way and one chooses the sort of quote-unquote light way. And I think the way that that plays out in the lore of the Lich and the way it plays out in the lore of, of Vecna, the character in Stranger Things, are fairly similar in the respect that there's a natural order. This natural order when it comes to life is that you are born, you grow up, you have kids, you pass on to the next generation, then you yourself die. And that the Lich upends that order by saying, no, you don't actually get to die and pass on to the next phase if there is one. You get to be kind of reanimated and stuck in sort of a permanent sort of in-between life and death. And the character Vecna, the character one, is sort of relegated to this sort of type of purgatory. He even says, am I in purgatory? When he recounts his memories of being pushed to this other dimension, which upends this sort of natural order of the way things should be, the way we should have our lives. And because of that, because the order has been upended, 
that is where it gets into the quote unquote like darker magic. The evil magic is all sort of changing the natural order, the way things should be. I think of uh, Lord City as saying the dark side is a pathway to many abilities some consider unnatural. And Vecna living in this space in between our world and this other dimension, this weird thing, and living in this upside down and channeling this power that does not belong in the world of Hawkins, Indiana, is the way that he is living out this sort of lichness, this sort of evil wizardry, which is like, you can have access to the secrets of the universe, but you can also take that access and pervert it and upend the order. And that is what Vecna, the character, the character one is trying to do. Yeah, he relishes it, right? It is a curse at first that he is sent to this purgatory that he sees and that he is transformed from a human into this, you know, hideous burned creature who becomes spider-like. But then he relishes it and he curses. One says to Eleven how much he resents the natural quote-unquote order. He hates time. He hates the way that we use clocks to say life is seconds, minutes, you know, days, months, years, decades. He hates the never-ending cycle of you're born, you grow up, you get a job, you get married, you reproduce, and then you die. He's like, I need to break that for what he sees as a more natural order, the one that he observes in the lives of spiders. So I'm glad you brought that up. I'm also glad that you mentioned this kind of dualism uh, of these, these characters that resonate throughout lots of our stories, the light and the dark sides of the same power, which we see represented in one and 11 in Henry and Jane. Uh, And we see that through Vecna as he comes to embrace the darkness that 11 herself has come close to touching so many times. They debate who's the hero and who is the monster. Both of them think they are in the right. And Vecna in D and D also has a similar kind of dualism because he's at the center of one of the more notable Dungeons and Dragons uh, rivalries. He has, there's a character named Kaz who starts out as his disciple, who starts out learning from him and growing under him and is a devotee of Vecna. And then he rises up and decides that he is going to overthrow his master. He uses a sword that's called the Sword of Kaz. We did see a sword in this season, although it was not wielded by Eleven. And he's the one who actually cuts off Vecna's hand and uh, plunges his sword into Vecna's eye. So he's the reason that Vecna then shows up in the earliest versions of D&D as just those artifacts. Uh, You know, it's complicated later. You know, Vecna, the Archlich, will find ways to ascend into demigod status and then full godhood. But there is this sense that there are two Uh, figures who wield the same kind of power, but who choose to use it in different directions. There is this devotee overthrowing the master. There is 11 overthrowing one. And this idea of a sort of dualistic cosmology between lightness on one hand and darkness on another hand is something that we do really see fleshed out in Christian theology, in that there is God and there is Satan, and that earth is this battlefield by which they are competing for the souls of humans, and that is the currency by which either lightness or darkness will win. And we see that even though Stranger Things is a deeply secular show, and it is very much uh, critiquing things like the Satanic Panic because the Satanic Panic is freaking stupid, And deserves to be critiqued. But there is this sense of between the lightness and the darkness path that there are two fundamental ways that we can approach knowledge, truth, wisdom, and power. And those two ways, one could be in the light and one can be in the dark. And we have that, which is another reason why season four of Stranger Things is so good is because it gives us the anti-Eleven. And that is the biggest challenge to Eleven And that is what this season and this show deeply needed was someone that could be as powerful as, if not more powerful than Eleven, 
but operate in a opposite and different moral system. And getting that is one of the reasons that season four of Stranger Things to me is so unbelievably successful in its narrative compared to season two and three, which were just good. Which And there's nothing wrong with just being good. Yeah, because it's still Stranger Things. Yeah, because good is still really hard to do in these complicated businesses, and it's really hard to do good art. But season one and season four are great. Yeah, and you know, talking about this Christian cosmology that does find its way under the surface of Stranger Things, look at Vecna's whole plan, which feels very Revelations-esque. He has to do these four sacrifices that feel a little bit like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He has to open these gates that feel like the breaking of the seventh seal. And, you know, Hawkins becomes the battlefield. Hawkins becomes the fields of Megiddo where Armageddon, the great battle, will be fought. I just think that that's a really interesting, uh, you know, comparison for that that will lead us very much into what we talk about next week. At, Not next week, but <laughs> next episode. Next episode, yeah. Don't tease our listeners. Whenever When we is. can get to it. And what, by the way, listeners, we appreciate the fact that you're patient and we haven't lost you in our irregular schedule, which will probably still be irregular for a while. Yeah, because uh, Arthur only naps once a day now. Uh, so we'll be back to weekly once he's 18. Yeah. (laughs) In 17 more years, we'll be back to weekly. I hope we're still doing the podcast. All right. I adore Stranger Things. One other um, piece to the puzzle, just to pepper in a little philosophy here at the end. The idea of like a a dual cosmos actually predates Christianity. And it starts with my friend of the pod, my man, Plato. Plato, baby. Plato described the universe as a confluence of two forces, which were ignorance and self-knowledge. Ignorance and self-knowledge ends up becoming the conflict by which Christian theologians, who are all mostly Neoplatonists, understand God as self-knowledge and Satan as ignorance, and that they have this dualistic way that they look at the universe from the origins of Plato. I absolutely love that. We should talk more about that soon. We really should. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. We're going to talk about Satan again in our next episode. But until then, be kind. I piggybacked from a pizza dough freezer.